Welcome to PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Each podcast features local and regional executives sharing relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank of New England, and I'm joined by my co-host, Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you again. In this episode, we welcome Corey Thomas, Chairman and CEO at cybersecurity firm Rapid7. Corey also serves on the boards of the Cyber Threat Security Alliance, the Mass Competitive Partnership, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, among others. So Corey, welcome, great to see you. So to kick off, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are three words that colleagues would use to describe you? Oh, that's actually a great introduction. So uh, I'm the chairman and CEO of Rapid7. They would describe me as energetic. They would definitely describe me as slightly chaotic (laughs) and creative. Corey, going back to early in your career, what were some of the life experiences that were most formative in shaping who you are as a leader and influenced your career trajectory? It's an interesting question because, you know, sometimes you have these big momentous life sort of like catalysts. And then sometimes you have these small ones. For me, it was like a series of very small ones. So one of them was this whole happenstance thing where I was getting in trouble at school and my mom was freaking out and she happened to work for a school district the county over. And her boss, who was a social superintendent of schools, called and told me that I was making my mom unproductive and that um, she was going to bring home an application and I was going to fill out the application. And long story short, it actually ended up sending me from sort of like a very challenging school environment to like the, I got moved to a school in a wealthy suburbs. And that was just one of those small things that catalyzed it. You know, another one was the experience of doing a program called Inroads, which was an affirmative action program, but it was to help people who didn't have the background get internships in corporate America. And so I got a great internship at AT&T in Georgia with lots of wonderful mentors. And, you know, I think about all of these sort of like things are exposure enhancing things that actually give you a different barometer of what's possible and give you different ways to actually set your aspirations. So those are two. Another one was the Harvard Summer Adventure Management Program, which Dr. Jim Cash, who I consider one of my mentors, led. All of these things were helped me push the boundaries of what I thought was possible and help sort of like catalyze sort of a career over time. Tell us a bit about Rapid7 and your work there. So Rapid7 is a cybersecurity firm that's focused on analytics and automation. We have a simple premise that cybersecurity is hard and difficult. The technology environment changes nonstop. And in order to have good cybersecurity, historically, you've had to have been like an elite organization with massive amounts of money to hire the best people. And we have a simple notion is every company should be able to actually have an excellent cybersecurity program. Uh, And so what we actually, our mission is to apply analytics, intelligence, and automation to make the most sophisticated, most effective cybersecurity approaches available to the broadest swath of organizations. And that's driven our growth today. We have over 2,000 employees around the world. Analysts expect us to be over half a billion dollars in revenue this year and we've been growing steadily over time over the last like 10 years and so it's a company and organization that i'm quite proud of the people at 
you have had a busy uh, couple of years, that's for sure. And it, that has really expanded the company. So talk a little bit about what's some of the best advice that you've been given that resonated with you or was important perhaps at a particular crucial moment. And then what's your best advice to business leaders, both in the C-suite and the next generation? So first, best you've been given, your best that you can give to others. It's interesting because, you know, the best advice is always relative to where you are in life. And so, and I always think about sometimes advice matters the most when you're stuck. You should always be curious and always get advice. But for some reason, you can actually listen better when you're stuck. And so for me, you know, there's been a couple of periods in life where I've been just absolutely stuck. So one of them was when I was coming out of graduate school, I just got my MBA. I was trying to figure out the career and I was family, career, aspirations and all this other stuff. And someone asked me, they said, do you want to have the job and the title and get there fast? Or do you want to be actually excellent when you achieve your sort of like ambitions and aspirations? And I had not thought about sort of like this thing. He says, listen, everything you're talking about talks about the speed and how fast you actually get there. And I get it. You're young. You actually have urgency. But like you're absolutely going to get there. The thing that I don't know is are you going to be excellent when you actually get there? And the impact that you have in life is going to be based on sort of your excellence, not the speed that you actually get to think. And that really sort of like had me think about sort of like what excellence is and approach life through this sort of an angle about like, how do you actually become the best at something? And that was incredibly powerful for me at that time. And it reoriented how I thought about my career. So, you know, I've had several lateral moves in my career. I've had several moves where people think it's a step back. You know, my compensation, as my wife would point out, has decreased so like two times um, materially. <laughs> so, you know, like having to move from a house into a small apartment. It's difficult work, but it was about getting experience that actually led to excellence. So that was one. Uh, the other one was I had lots of anxiety about going public. I had somewhat reluctance. Lots of people want to do it. I just had a negative perception of public companies and how they operated in the short termism. I got some wonderful advice that said that you don't control the environment of how people see you, but you definitely control what you actually do. And so you can actually be a public company and be long-term oriented. That just means that you actually have to do a good job of communication. You have to be willing to actually have the fortitude to actually sometimes be willing to get punished for sort of like taking a long-term view. But what other people do has nothing to do with what you do. And so do a great job of communicating, do a great job of telling the long-term story, do a great job of executing. And it may be lumpy, but there's no reason that just because everyone else does it, you have to be short-term oriented in a public market. And, and that actually both made me comfortable and actually became words to live by and taking a mid to long-term view. And so those are the two pieces of advice that I actually got that I actually think are, that are quite important. Any thoughts on what advice that you have for others? Mine is something that I actually just learned from my, my parents. And it seems like trite, but it's sort of like, for me, it's sort of like words to live by. It's sort of like so many times we are overwhelmed with the consequences and the optics of frankly just embarrassment. And so, you know, one of my things that I learned from my parents is be open and be focused on figuring out what the right thing to do based on what you have and figure out like, what do you think if you get rid of all the noise, what should happen if you get rid of the shame, the embarrassment and all the other stuff? Anchor on that and then use that to actually guide you on what you'll do and you'll be embarrassed. Your feelings will be hurt. You'll have some of the shame and other stuff. But if you actually repeatedly actually do the right thing time and time again, you'll actually live a better life. And so that's sort of like something that I brought from my parents. Corey, you're involved in many organizations and networks throughout the state. 
What are some of your observations about our city and the business community here? It's interesting because, you know, I'm a transplant to Massachusetts and I was a little bit cynical because, you know, sometimes you see lots of performance stuff. I will say I have, and I'm sure we actually have them, the people that just do it for performance, but haven't spent lots of time. There's lots of people in our business community who are genuinely concerned with the well-being of the people and the kids in the Commonwealth. And they may have different approaches to how they approach it, but they want to see sort of an environment where everyone thrives and everyone has opportunity and everyone's safe. And that's a much higher degree of people that I saw before. So one, just starting with that core baseline of like, are people care and do they, are they interested is a good thing. Now, you know, we're not always effective at how we actually go about it. In some ways, it's just a lack of understanding across things. And we don't necessarily always agree about the best approach to actually get that space where people actually have the opportunity, where we have the equity that we actually want, where we're creating the environment that we actually want. Part of that is a degree of empathy across lots of different stakeholders. So we tend to sort of like get our positions and we actually stick to them. And so whenever you lose curiosity, you close doors to progress. And sometimes across, we lose the curiosity. And then I would say that the other thing is where intention doesn't necessarily mean effort is that the way that the institutions and roles in the community operate for the last 50 years or 100 years just may not be the right ways to operate. And that's incredibly difficult because when you actually have dispersed power, which we actually have, figuring out new ways of collaboration, new ways of cooperation, that's just hard work. And that's why in many ways, I'm encouraged by the commitment that the community has up and down, because I do think it's difficult. And I do think that we don't have ready-made solutions that worked in the last century that we can necessarily apply to this century. And that's gonna require lots of diligence, lots of effort and lots of trust on lots of different stakeholders across the community. And I think that's part of the work that we're all doing right now. Corey, what are some of the bright spots and where may we be getting it wrong? What, what do you see is uh, how do we create a fertile ground for the industry to flourish and what other sectors are doing in the Commonwealth? I think we actually have any number of bright spots. One, you know, I view that the you can call it stimulus, the budget, the investment, whatever is coming down the line is that that is an incredible opportunity to actually do some of the experimentation and some of the trials to actually figure out new models of actually what works. And so having highly engaged stakeholders and the capacity to experiment and find in new ways is sort of like something we should be excited and optimistic about. Yes, we have to do it well. And yes, we have to make sure the voices, you know, different voices are included and heard. But there's a real opportunity, I think, over the next five years to say, how can we actually figure out different ways to solve some really foundational problems, whether you look at housing, whether you look at transportation, the equity and how people are treated and opportunity. We have some amazing opportunities. The other bright spot is we are in a market where sort of we businesses have to attract talent and labor. And so there's been almost no better opportunity to actually have inclusiveness in the economy and jobs where you actually have an incredibly tight labor market. And that's an opportunity to actually bring people in and actually have people engage in the economy and living wages. And for me, so much of what, you know, I grew up poor 
in Georgia. My parents worked their ways and they actually sort of like made it to the middle class and they focused on education and hard work for their kids. But I actually think labor force participation is incredibly important and having that a path to opportunities and living wage careers is critical. And I think we have a massive opportunity to actually do that. You know, one of the things that I think we have to figure out in terms of like what's the work to be done is I think we clearly have a housing crisis that is um, major and material and we have to, you know, it's, it's not theoretical. What I mean by that is that we have lots of investment, but if we can't find affordable ways for people to live, then that's going to create all types of difficulties, both not just for people who need housing, but also for employers who actually have to have talent. And that's incredibly important. And it's hard because it also requires us to do something different. So I look at something like housing just being one emblematic thing. So, you know, I live in Newton with a bunch of wonderful people who believe in access, but they're concerned about their property values. And what happens is if you actually have uh, digital housing, and I understand and I respect it, but again, if we actually keep the models of what worked in the last hundred years, and we just say, listen, we're not going to do that because it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. In some ways, comfort is the enemy of progress. We can actually make progress and everyone's better off but when we focus about things that actually do not want to make any change that might make us slightly uncomfortable, then that just means we actually rob progress from all of us. Uh, so that's just one small example of something that I think we have to address is sort of like we have to get a little bit uncomfortable across a bunch of different stakeholders if we're going to make change. You know, Corey, we've all faced so many unique and difficult circumstances during uh, the pandemic, uh, which we're still in. So how have these challenges shifted your longer term plans or your vision at Rapid7? So when we started the pandemic at Rapid7, we had a, you know, we looked at, at three big lenses. It's one, how do we take care of our employees first and foremost? And, and I would say that that's typically a, our mission for actually taking care of our customers is to be primary. Uh, and that window, we actually shifted and said, listen, we got to actually make sure we take care of the health and well-being of our employees. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't stay permanent because, you know, I'm a big believer that the mission of what you do for society and customers have to do. So, you know, our hierarchy is sort of like society and our role in society, our team and our employees, and then us as individuals. Like there's a there's a distinct hierarchy. Um, but health and well-being sort of like uh, rose. The second thing that we actually said is sort of like, hey, listen, this is an environment where people are going to become even more dependent on digital technology and things could get materially worse from a cybersecurity perspective. So if you actually have every company in the world becoming a technology company and every organization, including governments, becoming a technology company and you have massive digital acceleration in an environment where you have increasing attacks, that can actually create a disaster. So what we decided is that Unfortunately, through the pandemic, we can't actually rest. We need to accelerate progress. And so we actually cut back sort of like profit targets in the early part of the pandemic. We decided that we were going to reinvest in our employees. We decided we were going to accelerate our investments in R&D. And we actually, as part of that, we actually acquired four companies over the course of the last year to accelerate the security of our customers' digital environments as the world was relying more on technology. And that was extraordinarily intentional, but that was our way of saying we have to up our game because society is changing and the pandemic catalyzes things. So for us in the pandemic, we didn't have the ability to sort of like slow down. I mean, I remember a board meeting that was like, okay, we're actually going to speed up in the middle of this uncertainty. And that's what was required for us to actually do our job for our role in the world. Amazing to speed up in the middle of a pandemic. Corey, as CEO, what has been your North Star during this time? 
So during this time, and I would say for all time, I think about what are the things that we actually contribute uniquely to the world as one thing, which is why we actually accelerate it. And so for us, it's how do you actually take something that is incredibly complex and actually make it where the broad base of the world can be successful from their cybersecurity practices. So that's sort of like a company-oriented thing. I would say on, you know, much more of a personal thing, look, I grew up in the South. I came to New England. I am a Black man who's actually had a certain set of life experiences. I was deeply disturbed, but it also is not unexpected, sort of like what's happened with um, some of the, you know, whether you look at George Floyd or other things over the course of last year. And so for me, what matters most, and you say, what's my North Star, is that in an environment that you have a bunch of negativism, an environment where people are trying to pull us apart, is to me, the North Star is that we have to rebuild the credibility and the efficacy of institutions. And for me, the way that I actually think about it is that for lots of good reasons, people have lost faith and trust in institutions. And so the question is, how do we actually rebuild faith and trust in institution? And it has to be earned and not marketed. And so when I think about the role at Rapid7, we invest, we promote, we terminate, we fire, but it should be an institution that people trust and are proud of. And so how do we actually create an institution that our customers trust, that our employees trust, and that our partners trust? We don't always get it right, but the arc has to be that we're actually building an institution that people trust. When I think about my community engagement and where I spend time, it's sort of like, how do we actually spend time doing things that actually create the capacity for people to actually earn back trust in the institutions that we rely on? And that means that it's not just sort of like, are we achieving results? It's also, um, are we transparent? Do we communicate? And are we willing to be vulnerable about the imperfectness? Because it's not just achieving results, it's how we do it that actually builds the trust. So for me, that's the North Stars. We have to actually be committed to building institutions that re-earn the trust of people. Because I don't think societies at scale survive if people don't trust the core institutions that undermine them. To focus a little more on what you just talked about, you know, we've heard the challenges we're facing as a triple pandemic, if you will. The pandemic, economic disparities, and racial injustice. So as our nation and our community uh, faces issues of racial justice and a public health crisis, what do you think the role of the business community is in addressing these topics? It's a good question. I think there's many different roles. And so people can get overwhelmed. So the first thing I would say is that people can get overwhelmed with all the potential things you can do. So I think it's important to actually, again, make steady, consistent progress in a transparent way. So, you know, first and foremost, the business community, which is on balance, not all aspects of it, I really worry about the service industry. So uh, it has massive potential and massive resource and massive investment. And there's a real opportunity to actually take the economic and jobs engine and actually make sure that that's inclusive that's transparent and that's actually just. And so like doing the things that the business community does, but better, which can actually have massive impacts on employment and inclusiveness in the economy, which is a big thing for actually supporting both families, but also supporting an inclusive community. Because you know, if you actually have families that actually have stable jobs, our environment, remember stable jobs means stable healthcare. Stable jobs means that we can actually then support kids' education more. That is something that the business community can actually do. So that is really thinking about 
How do we actually apply our jobs into more broadly? One of the things that the MACP, the Mass Association of Competitive Partnership, is you know doing along with others, but there's a number of groups that are doing it, is re-examining fundamental things, for example, is just that do we actually need to actually have a standard where everyone that works at our companies has a college degree? And I think that all of us sort of like at first pass say yes, but then at second pass, it's like, why? Why is that the case? But start to reevaluate some of these things that we actually take for granted and say like, all right, the most important thing is actually finding workers that we can train that can do an excellent job and deliver excellent value. Then, all right, let's actually really question some of the assumptions about what it takes to do that. We still have to do an excellent job and excellent value, but we need to look at some of the assumptions that filter people out of the workforce unnecessarily. So that's the first and foremost things that I would say is business leaders in the business community we could do. We could do what we do, but even better and even more inclusively for better and higher end results. The second thing that I think is essential is that even though it's difficult and it may be demoralized, I think the business community has to actually be working constructively. And this is where you have to watch trust. And this is where the transparency matters with the government and public sector on some things that just require the intersectionality of of business and public sector and government. Like you can't solve housing without sort of like engagement from sort of like private firms as well as public policy and government. And so there's a lot of things that the business community has to be a stakeholder in, but not an exclusive stakeholder. Um, It needs to be a stakeholder with government, with community advocates and other things. Corey, as we look to the future, what are some of the broader economic or industry trends that you're watching carefully? There's so many things. So you have trends that sort of make you optimistic and trends that make you pessimistic. I'm in cybersecurity. Like, can we actually, you know, the simple thing that I do is that historically we've deployed technology faster than we can secure it, which has created a massive exposure for society. We have to keep deploying new technology, but can we actually improve the rate that can we deploy it at the pace that we can actually manage it that can actually limit the impact. The analogy that I use on cybersecurity is like public safety in some ways. It's that every city has crime, but we want to be one of those cities that actually has lower crime and a safer environment for all types of citizens. I think we can create a cybersecurity context, but that's a worry. We have to track that those gaps and that emergence. The second thing that I'm optimistic about, but just takes off the work is that while we're going through this public health crisis, We've also shown the incredible potential that's untapped in the healthcare industry and health tech and pharmacy and biotech. Whether you look at the vaccines or whether you look at telehealth uh, and the potential of whether you look at some of the interesting models about how people are expanding behavioral health access uh, and the perceptions of that. There is so much untapped potential in the health industries actually that can create better quality of, of lives and living. And that has me excited, but we have to actually figure out how to navigate it and navigate it inclusively uh, and how to navigate that, you know, as safe as possible. When I look out, I, I'm excited and optimistic, although it's lots of work, about how do we actually rethink about sort of cities and networks and regional hubs. You know, one of the things that actually comes out that is creates both risk and opportunity is the pandemic forced us to rethink lots of deeply held notions that we had about how work is done. So you have hybrid work, flexible work, completely remote work, but also you actually had this idea, and by the way, I still think it's about in some ways, of clusters, but you know, the tech community existed in like less than five cities around the world by and large. People look at that now and say like, why are we limiting ourselves to that? And I think you have that across, but the question that you have there 
is all right, what does that mean for sort of like migration and where people live? Because now, you know, my employees are just like, hey, why do I want to live in low cost of living, high cost of living areas? And so they're pushing me about like, how do we actually think about this? And how do you create regional hubs? And how in like places like the Commonwealth, do you think about Western Mass and Springfield and all these other places and think differently about sort of like, how do you organize an economy? And I think that has lots of opportunities to both spread and create more inclusive opportunities, but it also has the opportunity to create better quality of life. And so that's something that I'm excited about. And that spans everything from the smart cities initiatives to public policy to actually, I think, a more inclusive labor and workforce. And what worries you, Corey? Well, I talked about cybersecurity. I am massively worried about two things. I'm going to be very specific in that. So one, I'm massively worried about the nature of how everything becomes partisan and and affiliation by default. And so like thoughtlessly, so like splitting into camps. Now, I also want to be super clear about this because this is not one of those things that's sort of like everyone is sort of like, you know, the problems of everyone's equally. I think it's massively a problem that from a leadership perspective, we have deeply respected leaders who have become much more cavalier about things and the pursuit of truth and things like trust. And to me, that's not a partisan thing. It's just that like, you know, I think a core part of our value ecosystem is that basically we pursue truth. We can get it wrong, but like we actually value pursuing sort of like truth. Integrity is an standard and it's not something to actually be exploited for personal or political gain. And so I would say that I'm worried about partisanism on one hand, but I'm also worried about like we've lost somehow the idea that leadership should have high standards of integrity. Leadership should have high standards of character. And those seem to be values that are not consistently believed anymore. And I actually think that's massively detrimental to society. We'd love our listeners to learn a little bit more about you personally. And you ready for a few rapid fire questions to close out this episode? Let's go. All right. When you're not talking about work, what is your favorite dinner conversation topic? Oh, you have not met my daughter. She's 18 in college now. Had worked on like four different political campaigns. We actually don't have almost any dinner conversation that's not involved public policy. Oddly enough, it's less political than public policy, but like it's just that she just can't tolerate any conversation that doesn't involve some aspect of public policy. <laughs> your kids drive the conversation always. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite spot in Boston? Ooh. That is a great, like, look, I love the garden because it's a place that we actually go for games and I associate with family and I associate with friends. You know, the other places I love parks. I'm constantly taking a walk on the gardens in and around Boston. What makes you laugh? I'm a big fan of comedy and, uh, and somewhat a fan of dark comedy. And so I love sort of like reading dark comedy books or watching dark comedy shows. It just makes me laugh. I won't say the shows because they may offend some folks, but uh, <laughs> I like dark comedy. So. And finally, Corey, what's a wish for the future? You know, my biggest wish is that we value integrity and character leadership points. Like, I just think that like, if we get that right, I think that there can, people can have lots of different views. We can do our job in this generation to create a better society. Corey, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate you having you here. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Corey Thomas, Chairman and CEO of Rapid7. I'm Carolyn Jones. And I'm John Bernstein. Thank you for downloading PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. 
This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com forward slash Boston. Search PNC. Come back soon and join us for another episode of PNC Speak. Until next time.